Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist. This show is made possible by Student Loan Tutor, which you can find at studentloantutor.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and give us a review. Thank you. All right, welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. Uh, today, my guest is Michiel Klerk, uh, and we're going to be talking. Uh, Michiel, uh, Michiel is uh, the founder of the Jung Society of Utah, who Ecstatic Dance and myself do a lot of events with. He's no longer currently running that. He has someone else running the organization, but he is the founder. And uh, I forget how long ago did that come into existence, the Jung Society of Utah? That was uh, in 2009. 10 years ago, wow, 11. So, 11. Yeah, 11 years, 11 years now. And I think more recently, the, fa- the co-founder of uh, the Jung platform as well. When did that come into existence? Actually, the, we started in uh, 2011 with that, but it has always been on the site. And in the last year, I've really uh, left the Jung Society of Utah and focused on the Jung platform. Beautiful. Thank you, Michiel. So today, uh, I really brought Mahil on uh, the show because it's been a while since we've done an episode. Um, Madeline and I both have moved to an 86-acre off-grid farm on the coast of the Hamakua coast of the big island of Hawaii, and uh, there's some announcements there to come. But uh, needless to say, we've been super busy and wanting to record, but our, even our electricity, the da- joys of modern technology, is, is pulled off of a waterfall uh, that's what's powering all of these devices to record this, which is such a wild thing to have this technology in this beautiful place. Uh, but I brought uh, Mahil on the show because Mahil is my actually my depth psychologist. So I work with him on dreams, dream work and lucid dreaming. And, and we work together sometimes multiple times per week, especially since the coronavirus has come, uh, has come out and reared its ugly head uh, or maybe its healing head, you know, in the apocalyptic wake. Uh, so... Uh, I really wanted to bring him on to be able to speak more to everybody that uh, that wants to engage in this experience. And then Mahil has gotten some allies together on the Jung platform to put together a virtual uh, workshop, so to speak, with one of my favorite people, which is uh, Michael Mead, uh, who is also on the podcast and uh, who has also come down and uh, done a lot of storytelling and who's an elder and uh, a, a wonderful human being. And uh, also James Hollis, who I was introduced to through Mahil, through the Jung platform. And I think I've read like four or five of his books now in the past two months. Uh, since hearing about him, I couldn't stop. Uh, I was like, where has this guy been? Uh, and uh, Robert Bosnack, uh, which I, who I'm less familiar with, but started to get involved with from one of the courses on the Red Book on the Jung platform as well. So uh, I think that kind of the topic, my guess is the broad range of this topic is uh, depth psychology and the ecstatic. Where does depth psychology and Jungian psychology come in when it comes to ecstatic states of being? So with that said, I will. Uh, here's Mahil. Well, thank you, Zach. And it's great to be here with you. And uh, the listeners can see it, but I have a little view behind you and uh, the beautiful uh, Hawaii. Uh, it's, uh, let me first start uh, with saying something about depth psychology. So depth psychology is a a psychology that takes into account that there is an unconscious. Uh, Different than a behavioral uh, psychology or a psychology that really tries to change your thinking, depth psychology assumes there's an unconscious. Or in more indigenous terms, that there is an other world. There is this world and the other world. Or... Uh, in uh, uh, the more romantic tradition, one would say you have this world and the world of soul, the soul, the larger soul in the world, and that there is uh, that this soul or other world is inhabited by characters, by figures or states of consciousness that actually have a direct influence on how a person functions, and that uh, the goal is to figure out what is really in this unconscious, who is living in this other world that has a direct influence on my life and then find a way to relate to those uh, co- states of consciousness or those contents. That is, uh, in, in, in a nutshell, what uh, depth psychology is. And uh, uh, one of the states in this other world, or in this other worlds, 
uh, could be seen as uh, an uh, ecstatic state. And so uh, how, can this, uh, how can the individual relate, experience, embody ecstasy in this world? And that is really uh, the, big, uh, the big question. As uh, depth psychology uh, tries to have a person become transparent in this world to the other world. So that the other world flows through the individual in this world. And then a certain embodiment takes place. It's so interesting to hear you say all of that, because when you say all of that, Michiel, uh, I could imagine someone that's not familiar with depth psychology going, well, it doesn't sound like you're talking about psychology. It sounds like you're talking about mysticism. Uh, and I, I wonder, uh, I mean, that's kind of, when I, when I first discovered uh, depth psychology, I, I didn't, it didn't sound like any of the other psychologies that I'd heard of, you know, the, you know, behavioral psychology or uh, social psychology, it was almost like it had the name or the label of psychology because it deals with the psyche. But I think a lot of people don't really know what psyche means. What, what, is, what is psyche, Michiel? Well, psyche is, uh, is a Greek word that actually means soul. So a, 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 a psychology is a an, an, an study of or, or, or a knowledge about uh, the soul. And uh, the Western tradition has a very scientific model. And the scientific model has a tendency to exclude uh, an other world or uh, because it's, it's, uh, in, uh, you cannot measure it and quantify it. But that doesn't mean it isn't there, it just uh, um, cannot be captured. And so depth psychology has always been on the fringes of uh, regular psychology. It uh, has a bit of a hard time of being accepted by, uh, by uh, the more uh, hard scientific medical uh, psychology and many books that uh, people that study psychology at uh, the university have maybe one or two pages about Jung, uh, an, uh, a little chapter about Freud, and uh, that is it. And then it gets uh, discounted. But uh, it is in psychology that is uh, far closer to an, uh, an, an indigenous worldview. The worldview all around the world, a shamanic worldview. The worldview that is uh, the most uh, common uh, way of seeing the world is that there is this world and a world that, that runs parallel to this world. And in the shamanic tradition that is, uh, is, is inhabited by ancestors and by spirit guides. And uh, depth psychology tries to make it a little bit more scientific and say, says there are states of consciousness in, in the unconscious that do influence uh, an individual. And one way you can see that is, uh, for example, in dreams. In dreams, there are characters that uh, uh, have an influence on uh, the ego, and uh, they uh, uh, they they have they, they make a person do things in their day-to-day -day life, or have obsessive thoughts, or um, uh, something else that uh, uh, has an influence on their life. And so, depth psychology. Isn't, is indeed not the most uh, uh, well-known, yet uh, I think it is uh, uh, one perspective that allows for soul to be present. There's real psyche, there's real soul in depth psychology, which uh, can be missing in some of the more scientific uh, psychologies. Thanks, Michiel. What I, what I notice with depth psychology and the fact that I've, I've dove so, I've dove so deep into depth psychology in the past year um, is that it really helped free up a lot of places where I had been trapped. I think I had taken the roads and belief systems that I was given since birth and everything I could find, you know, that was kind of in the mainstream or maybe even counterculture. Uh, I kind of ran everything mainstream as far as I could. And then once that ran out, I, I figured out, okay, well, what's the opposite of that? Ran that direction pretty much as far as I could. Then I tried to like integrate both of them together in some way. And then I kind of exhausted that. And I, I've, I've heard the term uh, that a belief system could become monotheistic or uh, dogmatic uh, not it begins to lack self-reflection and becomes becomes it becomes rigid where there's good and bad good and bad and you're constantly stuck in this moral quandary and something that uh, the depth psychology perspective has done is really open up more possibility uh, of ways to view things instead of looking at it 
black and white or just from two angles. It's all of a sudden a new dimension. I even hear people in the new age, you know, terminology call it, you know, it's a fifth dimension, you know, you got to move to the 5D or whatever it is. And I don't quite know where the fifth dimension is or where, what happened to the fourth dimension. I've never been there. Maybe people are living in that dimension and I'm, I, I don't know how to access it. But in some ways, from a psychological perspective, and, and a psychological perspective is a real way of being. It changes the way you view all of the world. It changes your lens, so to speak. Uh, for me, the depth psychology has opened up uh, a lack of stuckness in my mind and in my thinking as well as in my relating with myself and with my dreams and with other people, as well as in my body, because I feel less resistant to, you know, situations and scenarios and thought process. I feel like I'm bracing less against it. Uh, before I felt like I was constantly def- like in a constant state of defense. And I feel like I'm still in defense, but not as much. And I think that's maybe what you would call by the embodiment term that you spoke about earlier. Does this bring up anything for you when I'm saying all this? Yeah, mo- mo- multiple things. Uh, one is uh, uh, a dogma is, an, uh, is, is a belief system that's no longer subject to reflection. And uh, uh, so uh, not much can happen. If you believe something and, and it's not, not longer challenged, then, you're, then you get a certain stuckness. The advantage is that it is safe. The disadvantage is that it's very limiting. It's almost like... Uh, in a dream, one could dream that one was locked up in a tower in a castle. Uh, one is safe, but uh, there's not uh, not much to do. And uh, uh, depth psychology really tries to uh, to challenge those notions where one is uh, dogmatic, so that it uh, breaks up and it uh, frees one from uh, from from one's own mental limitations. And uh, having an uh, ha- having a multiple perspective. Uh, bringing in uh, will 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 break up uh, those uh, those dogmatic uh, traditions and um, um, and, do- and dogmatism is also is always a form where there is a, a lot of violence inherently in the dogma because one has to defend the dogma against those that don't believe it so you can get a me they an I them culture uh, uh, one is kind for the in-group, but there is violence towards the out-group, and it is very destructive. And uh, uh, we, we, of course, uh, live uh, in a culture that uh, has very dogmatic uh, elements to it. And so you see there that there is uh, inherently a violence towards uh, people that think otherwise, and that, uh, that lacks a certain kindness and, and compassion and soul. Then, uh, so that is that is one string that uh, that sparks in uh, in the when, when you talk. You know, I hear what you're saying, and I think uh, dogmatism has a funny way of working it, working that same context into new belief systems, where the new belief seems like it's very different from the previous one, but the context of dogmatism is the same; it remains present there's still this defense element where it works its way into a counterculture uh, uh, and then it might work its way into what, what many people refer as new age culture. And one of the things that I've seen, and I think I've probably shared with you this with you in therapy, is oftentimes I will, will speak about things that are troubling me or about the world or whatever. And, uh, and it gets, I, I call it maybe the love and light dogma where everything is love and light and uh, anything that's not love and light by even bringing it up is feeding the opposite of love and light and you need to just focus on love and light. And it's really frustrating for me when I run into this situation. Uh, I I don't want to be pessimistic by any means, but uh, I also want to be, I want to honor what is wrong in the world because it's through, I I think Jung has an interesting quote about something about not focusing on beings of light you might be able to quote that for us and talk about maybe what this means. Yeah, Jung has says something to the extent that uh, enlightenment doesn't come from uh, f- fantasizing of being as of light, but from making the dark contents, uh, 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 focusing on the, on the dark contents and bringing them into awareness. And so we all have, uh, uh, if we see ourselves as a boarding house filled with, uh, with characters, there are characters that uh, 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 will 
to one we all have an inner critic and this critic will say to the one you're uh, you're you're dumb and to the other that uh, they're inadequate and the other that uh, people leave you because uh, you're uh, unlovable and uh, instead of uh, just saying oh i'm so lovable i'm so lovable what uh, works actually better is to figure out what is this character doing that says that says all these uh, critical and, and and negative things and then bring that character into awareness so that uh, one can can learn how the character operates within oneself and uh, then uh, one can start having a different relationship to the character because the character almost uh, puts a spell on a person and then when it comes by it says oh you're 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 an imposter and then immediately the person thinks oh I'm an imposter and then you get get possessed by the contents of the unconscious in depth psychology or in the indigenous culture one would say a negative spirit comes over you now that spirit doesn't disappear by imagining how how lovable you are but by uh untangling the the the, the negative spirit and and bringing it into your full awareness so that you notice when it says oh you're an imposter and uh, that doesn't mean you're an imposter, it's just a voice that is there. And uh, that is really how you differentiate your consciousness and uh, uh, bring it into awareness. And that is how the growth of consciousness takes place. Or uh, in one way, that is how it takes place. And if you only focus on, which can have its advantages, but if you only focus on, I'm not an imposter, I'm, I'm so capable, I'm so capable, that doesn't solve the, the problem that this imposter lives in your own psychological boarding house and will come by the moment that you least like it. And so your problem will never get solved. Or better related to is maybe a better term. Does that make, uh, do I explain that? Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, I, I think what I really love about uh, depth psychology and you and the work you've done with me is being able to see these as, you know, essentially in the shamanic culture would be, you know, the spirits, you know, and spirits potentially that have been haunting my ancestors for years that of course have, you know, worked their way through my family line, through interactions that I've had with my mother and father and grandparents and, you know, through communities, you know, those same spirits work through communities. I grew up in the inner city, you know, in the project. So, you know, there was, you know, different demons that came out there that says you're not tough enough or you're not whatever. And, uh, and to see those and not try to fight them off uh, or not try to ignore them. Uh, there's a lot of people, myself included, that really wanted to believe that I could just somehow draw a line in the sand and go, the past is the past and it no longer affects me. I am done with the past. It's all about the power of now in the moment, love and light. It's gone. You know, the, the, the wake doesn't drive the ship, as Alan Watts says, the tail doesn't wag the dog. You know, the past doesn't matter. I have little use for it. Uh, that it sounds great uh, in theory, but what I found was is that this, it just haunted me anyway. Uh, my life ended up having to be so restricted that there were so many things I couldn't engage in because anything I engaged in, all of these weird feelings would come through and thoughts would come through. I know those to now be complexes or you could call them <laughs> spirits or whatever whatever the name we want to use. Uh, it's, it's semantics at that point, but they became hauntings in a way. James Hollis actually talked to, I read a book called Hauntings and, uh, and I'm like, that is totally what it is. And it's not that we even have control over these hauntings. These hauntings have control over us. We become hijacked by these complexes when we're in a state of weakness. You know, sometimes we could be able to, you know, see that they're there and not be fully taken over, but oftentimes they come and we have an outburst, we start screaming at somebody, we start to belittle ourselves in our mind, or we just avoid situations that will cause that to happen. We learn that we don't like dancing, for example, because when we do that, we that feels like shit. Or we don't like to go talk of uh, attractive people of the opposite sex or the same sex for that matter, because that makes us feel really uncomfortable. So we have all of these all of these feelings come up, and these are the complexes. And we say we think as human beings that that's who we are. You know, that's who I am. But what you're saying is that's not who we are. These are essentially complexes that are that have essentially trapped our egoic state, our our, our state of being, 
is essentially dominated by those things. And there's ways to incorporate these other elements and grow as a person. And I think there's a term called individuation that Jung talks about. I don't know if you want to touch on that briefly. I know you have something coming up about individuation. Yeah, with the Jung platform, we have an, uh, an, an, a free online summit in May on individuation with 12 uh, really great speakers on that uh, Jungian analysts on that topic. And people can enroll for free on jungplatform.com. I might, I might come back to that. But what I uh, um, also uh, reminded me of is um, one of the thoughts that people sometimes have is that uh, they're a separate that they're a, that they're a unique individual that they're a separate entity. Depth psychology actually takes uh, uh, the hypothesis that we're interconnected. And so not everything uh, that you experience is this I, is this self. This I in, in depth psychology is, is, is just another word for, oneself, for, for, for me. It's not a negative uh, thing. It's more the, uh, the, 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 the uh, character that takes decisions in, uh, in the boarding house. But there is, uh, if, if you think you're an, 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 an separate individual, then everything is you. But if you know that uh, there are, in the indigenous model, that there are spirits that haunt you, then, uh, then you, don't, you will never say, I am the spirit. I am an imposter. No, an imposter spirit haunts you. And uh, by not identifying with imposter, you can uh, get uh, uh, a separation. And then uh, you free yourself from the haunting, from the complex. And uh, I've, I know that a lot of people in ecstatic dance know that uh, uh, there's a larger self and uh, a oneness and whatever, and that we're interconnected. So this, uh, this fits uh, probably in, in, the, in the world view. Yeah, we hear, we, I mean, in kind of in new age terminology, the whole idea that we are all one, but I think it gets mixed up. It's not that we are only one. It's, it's paradoxical. It's we are all together in this experience and connected and interwoven, you know, the term of a hologram comes to mind as a good metaphor, but we're not just one thing. We're not in a solipsistic universe, meaning that I'm not dreaming up you, like you exist as, a, as your own soul, like I'm not you by definition. <laughs> and, I, and I think that this is a challenging place to be, is to be in the tension of the opposite or be in the tension of the paradox. And, uh, and I think it's an uncomfortable place to be. And if there's anything that human beings want to do, want to do is they want to move towards comfort oftentimes. And sometimes the biggest growth happens even, you know, metaphorically as we're growing as a, or I guess that would be literally when we're literally growing as a child, it's painful uh, to grow. And, uh, and, you know, it's not that we need to be doing it at all times. However, to understand not to avoid that feeling of being stuck in the paradox and being stuck in the tension between opposites. Uh, I, I don't know if what I'm saying is, is uh, if there's a better way to say that. Well, we live in this world. There are, there are multiple worlds. You have this world. You have the world of dream. When you go to bed and you uh, fall asleep, you're in a different world. We have all kinds of experiences. And so there are all these different worlds that we live in. So at one hand, we, 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 are, we, we are separated and live in different worlds. And on the other hand, there is a form of interconnectedness, this, uh, this larger soul that we're all part of. And uh, uh, we do experience non-self states, things that, that aren't ourself, imposter, maybe ecstatic state, uh, enlightened state, uh, uh, destructive state. Orgasmic sex right in the peak of that whole experience that is very unifying very non-egoic self feeling yeah 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 you 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 enter into that state of consciousness but you it would be a stretch to say i am that state and mm -hmm. uh, uh so we experience that but on a certain level there's uh, there's there is uh, a larger unity and probably behind that is a certain non-dual state which uh, uh, which unity is not is not really the same as non-dual. That makes sense. I, I was listening to uh, an audio book about lucid dreaming today, and 
I forget the woman who's, I wish I could credit her. Uh, actually, I can, because I have my phone here. Um, by Claire Johnson. I don't know if you're familiar with her. And uh, she was talking about how uh, there's a realm between, which is a hypnagogic state that exists between being awake and, be, and, and being in the dream world, which Michael Mead I've heard refer to as the liminal space, you know, the space between two more familiar places. And as we know, if we go into that middle space, all of a sudden that becomes its own space with its own liminal spaces. And she's talking about six degrees of liminal space and that she's able to stay aware between that, that state of being awake and going into the dream through the stages of hypnagogic state and she's able to see kind of that, um, uh, what is it called? Amorphous, uh, like light texture where uh, images and the imagination essentially manifest and, and have a play and interchange between human consciousness, between her consciousness. And uh, she says, you know, I mean, she goes as far as to say that potentially that is the more oneness or non-dual state that all of the different ideas, theories, and matter may originate from. That could be the, essentially, the, I don't want to get too philosophical here, but I've had these experiences of going between waking and going to sleep. And, you know, it's been a, it's been a blessing to have the leisure to not be so exhausted physically that I go straight from being awake to being asleep and to be able to go, okay, I'm going to go to sleep and stay, try to stay awake as I'm going to sleep and see what what's here and uh i guess maybe this is a good time to go into why our dream well i guess we live in a culture where dreams are are looked at as kind of uh superficial or you know uh you know maybe just junk rubbish left over from the day before or just kind of nonsense or quote unquote not real uh, however people like carl jung and entire cultures actually value dreams and gave dreams precedence uh, over uh, everyday dense reality or waking reality. So maybe you want to touch on what is the importance of dreams? Why do we care about our dreams? There are many ways of being with a dream. And uh, there are different theories of what a dream is. One is that it's the digestion of the day and it uh, solidifies uh, memory. There, be, uh, there appears uh, that appears to be one of the elements that dreams indeed do. Yet there is so uh, so much more to a dream. A dream is uh, can be uh, uh, often provides a great diagnostic of uh, where a person is, what uh, emotionally goes on in t in them. Uh, dreams uh, in the dream state, one uh, can uh, uh, encounter uh, spirits or ancestors or get teachings or gets insights. You can uh, ask your dream before you go to bed a question in order to elicit a response in your dream. It's called uh, dream incubation. Uh, you can lucid dream, which you just uh, hinted at, that you uh, are uh, aware in the dream state that you are dreaming. And then you can do all these uh, experiments. And lucid dreaming is really one of the central techniques in, uh, in certain Tibetan uh, 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 Tibetan um, Buddhist traditions of uh, reaching enlightenment uh, because the dream state uh, uh, gives a better insight into the nature of reality, how does the mind uh, function, and uh, that gives a better insight in, in this reality, I call this dense reality. I wanted to chime in on the lucid dream and the Tibetan and the Tibetan history behind that from what I understand, which I understand very little because that's not my culture originally. Uh, so, uh, what I found was uh, in kind of the modern day speak, one of the terms that I hear getting thrown around less now, actually, it's getting, it's like more, it's like too mainstream for like kind of the new age at this point. It's like people call it woke, you know, like so-and-so is woke and stop being so asleep and be woke. And, uh, and what, what's really fascinating is it's like, well, what do you mean by woke? Like awoken to what? Like awoken to a dogma that you know, us versus them, or is it being more mindful? Is that what is mean by woke? Uh, and I heard uh, a very fascinating thing about the Tibetans is that they would 
essentially try to be woke, as you would say, or awake, or very lucid is probably a better term. They would focus on being lucid. Lucid is a high degree of mindfulness in everyday waking life from moment to moment, not just for 20 minutes a day. Maybe that's where they're concentrating it, but ultimately they're trying to be as lucid as possible throughout the day and holding that intention. And then they're lucid through the state between being awake and going to sleep through those hypnagogic states. And then they're actually lucid throughout the night as well. And there's people that have, I mean, have been able to be lucid for 24, 48, 72 hours. And probably there's, you know, llamas that are just lucid nonstop. They're aware and awake in their dream state. They're aware and awake in their uh, hypnagogic, those levels of the liminal dream space between being awake and asleep. And they're also awake in the, uh, what is it, a hypnopompic, which is the state between being asleep and waking up. And the idea is, is that they practice this lucidity, this being woke, so to speak, the Tibetans do, in order to be able to be awake at their own death, as opposed to what our current culture, our death phobic culture, where we try to numb ourselves out and be as delirious as possible as we go into the next life that probably that may likely just bring us right back to where we were like Groundhog's Day to do the same thing all over again. Who knows what happens? I, I'm not, I, I can't claim that I know what happens. But what they say in their in their belief systems, as far as I understand, is that it, that at the point of death, it's a lot like the point of going to sleep through that hypnagogic hypnagogic state, is that you enter something called the bardo, and your awareness enters into this bardo, and then you actually can have uh, some level of choice or movement. There's still some aspect of the soul that's able to move, and maybe this is the transmigration of souls. I'm not quite sure what it is, but it's pretty cool to have a practice that you could watch grow as we age. And I think it's so beautiful to have a dream practice. And I wonder why dream practices are not far more popular than they are. What's really popular is like meditation and yoga, but dream practices seem to not be mainstream. And I don't know why that is. And I know this is your life passion and the Jung platform and the Jung Society of Utah all came through dreams. So I'm curious to know why you think it is that a dream practice isn't so popular. Uh, partly because uh, uh, dreams are uh, are only understood in one in, 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 in a couple of limited models in the West. Uh, the main thing that people think about dream dream work is interpretation. But actually, uh, what you want to start with, with uh, if you really want to understand a dream, but you want to know uh, what a dream is, and a dream is a world that you find yourself in while you are. Uh, sleep in bed and so uh, if anyone who's listens take a dream that you recently had that you remember well or maybe a dream that was very intense or a nightmare and remember uh, that dream and where you were were and most likely you were somewhere and there was an other a monster or a, an animal or a person and you had an interaction so the dream is a world you find yourself in where you have an experience. Now a lot of uh, traditions, uh, Western interpretation traditions, think that the dream is a message from mystery source X to you, or from the self to you, or uh, from your brain to you. But it's not a message, it's a world. You can make meaning from that world, but that is secondary to having an experience. Just like this world is a world we find ourselves in, that we take very serious, that we believe. Then we go to bed, we fall asleep, we are in the dream world, we take that world very serious. We don't re reflect or know even that we're in the dream world. We see the crocodile, we run away um, and we're, uh, we're afraid. And the real nature of reality in the dream world is that this is a dream crocodile. I don't have to be afraid. I would not have to run if I only knew that it was a dream. Then I wake up and I'm in this reality again. And I take all these things very serious and it's all uh, very important and all my fears and love and whatever else. And so that cycle goes on. So there already we are in two bardos, like you mentioned with the bardo of death. Death is another world uh, that we... Uh, enter into when we die. But we're already now in these different worlds, these different bardos, the bardo of dream, the bardo of this world. And what we do is we take it, uh, we take it literal, 
and serious. And if we knew how this world was a co-construct of our own mind, we uh, would uh, uh, create a lot of freedom. Just like if you knew in the dream, hey, this is a dream crocodile, I don't have to run. I can let the dream crocodile eat me, I can fly away, I can give it a hug. There's so many other options that at once uh, present itself the moment you see the, the, the true nature of reality. And uh, uh, so there's so many ways of being with a dream where the, uh, where the Western tradition is almost focused on, uh, s only on dream interpretation. And also a dream interpretation of an environment that we don't, don't realize this is a world we're in and it's not like a letter from mystery source X to you that you need to decipher in, in some symbolic code. No, it's an experience just like this and with that experience there's a lot that you can do with it. And, uh, uh, and, and then it can become a very enriching uh, world to be in. And that world does indeed uh, very often uh, describe how we feel, it provides states of consciousness that uh, are beneficial for our day-to-day -day life. Uh, we meet uh, people that have uh, interesting uh, messages for us. Um, we can uh, find healing in a dream or we can find answers to problems in the dream. There's a lot that the dream uh, can provide to us. But our, uh, but our scientific worldview had a tendency, has a tendency to discount uh, the reality of uh, any other world than the measurable dense reality world we're in right now. So any, any other world uh, is being discounted, the world of the ancestors. If there are really ancestors, we have a problem in science because we can't measure them. But if they do influence us and uh, uh, maybe their trauma uh, gets passed on or they hang around to see how you do or to support you, then we miss out on, on that support. And Carl Jung was a medical doctor, so it's not like he was some guy who took a weekend workshop somewhere. He was a medical doctor and a famous, uh, one of the most famous psychiatrists that's ever lived. Uh, Sigmund Freud, maybe debatably the only one that's more well-known than Carl Jung, uh, which is so fascinating to me, and Adler, I guess. But uh, it's so fascinating to me that I, I hear Jung, I hear the name, or Jung, as I used to th think it was. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I so seldomly understand. Somehow it's like you heard of Carl Jung, and then I don't, I don't know, this is how I used to be. And I go, okay, I like, looked a little bit into it. Now I have it. I have the essence of what it is. And I think we're so quick to do that. We're looking to, uh, while you were saying all of that, like the, the world that we're in, the solid state reality where statistics are present and the only thing real is what can be measured. I mean, for most people, that's just reality. Of course, that's that. Of course, that's what reality is. Uh, and I think people have a deep craving for magic and sometimes attribute magic to places where magic, it's not even magic, where that actually is statistics, where there actually is really beautiful magical things that are happening that were being that are being totally discounted like an entire bardo a dream bardo the, the entire world of dreams uh the entire world of ancestors the world of of ritual and ceremony and tr and seeing what unfolds from that i mean i've had things happen that i mean carl jung wrote a book about this and i think coined the term synchronicity and maybe you want to touch briefly on what a synchronicity is, because a synchronicity is maybe the opposite of this other world, the other world where you could explain everything. I, I, I think I've heard it called explainism. Somehow, like, if I could explain it, then I have it. Like, I grabbed it, I put it in my pocket, I ate it, or whatever. It's like this, if I could explain it, then it's real. And, uh, and I've, I've had synchronicities happen where, I, like, I can't, it's the opposite. I can't explain it. Like, the statistical probability of that specific thing happening in that exact moment is virtually zero. And maybe you want to touch on what a synchronicity is and where that came from. Synchronicity is a term that Carl Jung uh, coined, and it uh, means meaningful coincidence. So people might uh, think about someone and then that person calls. Or... Uh, a person dies and just on that moment the clock stops ticking. Now there is a uh, relationship uh, between those events, the, the death and the uh, 
clock stops ticking, but it's not causal. The death doesn't cause that, or I, my, me, my thinking doesn't cause uh, the, the, the phone to ring. But they coexist at the same time, and the, co and, and the relationship between them is meaningful, and uh, even a, often a bit magical. And anyone who closes their eyes a little bit and looks at the world that way can, can pretty rapidly pick up on, uh, on the meaningful coincidences that uh, happen around uh, oneself. And this uh, could indeed be uh, a, a version in which the other world merges with this world and where these two worlds uh, come together. They're not uh, at, uh, at a different planet, it's uh, they're on a continuum. And uh, uh, the importance for psychological growth is to pay attention to these uh, meaningful coincidences because they, uh, they, they are uh, generated by something larger than ourselves in order for us to grow or to learn something or to be something. And so they come in service of the, of the development of one's soul. And so if you're stuck in life or you uh, have a problem, then uh, it, it, uh, it, it helps to pay attention to these magical coincidences. Keep your rational mind to check them, but uh, to follow the... And just because it's 11.11 when you hear an advertisement doesn't mean you should buy that thing, right? Because the advertisement came at 11.11. I see this happen a yeah. lot of times where people create meaning where they're, they, I mean, I would say they try to create, they, they, they've had synchronicities happen and they really so crave that connection with the divine that they start attributing synchronicity where maybe there isn't any synchronicity. And I know that that tendency is alive within me too, where I'm deeply trying to find meaning sometimes where there isn't meaning instead of just really surrendering into, okay, maybe this is a time that I, I could just be with what appears to be mundane for a while and see what unfolds. Oh, but there is, there is an art. Art. Uh, t attending to uh, synchronicity is an art. There's not a hard science that says this 11-11 will always mean that. No, it, uh, it requires a relationship and, and, and figuring out and sometimes one makes mistakes and sometimes it's the, it's the right thing and somehow the heart knows. And so you, you are far better off following your heart and your own hunches about the synchronicity than not. But that once in a while we create meaning where there is no meaning. And, and if you push that a little further, you really get in a paranoid state. Paranoia is a meaning disorder where you see meaning where there is no meaning. Uh, in the extreme senses that I think uh, the microphone you have is uh, attached to the FBI and they're listening in uh, because they, whatever, and there I go. Or I see an, a, a license plate that, uh, that, that uh, says uh, something and uh, I start following that wherever. And that might, <laughs> that might have nothing to do with me. But maybe it does. And sometimes the smarter you are, the, more, the, 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 the higher your intellect, you could make even connections in the, in the most wild places. Like the guy from the, the you know, uh, what is it called? A Beautiful Mind? Yeah. Where he's making connections everywhere because yeah. he's seeing so many connections. And the more you see, the more you're able to see. And then people could really fall deeply into that, deeply into that trap. But, but syn following synchronicity is an art. But uh, that art uh, is there, and uh, therefore it's uh, encouraged that people follow it. But there's like uh, in a little jump to, uh, to the ecstatic dance and the other worlds. When people go to ecstatic dance and they dance, they open themselves up to this other world. And uh, in a certain moment with certain music and a certain uh, rhythm, they can, uh, they can experience ecstasy because they open this world up to the other world that then flows through them and they embody temporarily ecstasy in this uh, in this ecstatic state, and uh, uh, so ex uh, the, the world of ecstasy is not somewhere out there. It's around us, and in certain ways we can we can access those states. And the crucial thing is that they are embodied, so that we live them in this world. Like in, it said in the Christian Bible that Jesus said you know, the kingdom of heaven is here among you and it does not come with signs to be observed. You know, it's an embodied, it's an embodied moment that's, that's happening, at, you know, at any, at any given moment. 
um, that is essentially that that world comes over into this one in some way. Um, and I, I remember Jiddu Krishnamurti, I, I spent so much time reading and listening to him, and he says, you can't make the other world come to you. He would call it the otherness. And uh, he says, you know, he'd be overtaken with the otherness. He was very anti-dogma, maybe almost too much so, if that's possible. Uh, and uh, But very healing for me, because I really needed that. I needed to learn how to question, uh, because I was so ridden with guilt and shame uh, from my my, Christ, my dogmatic Christian upbringing uh, that I was totally entangled all over myself and I would have to just ignore different thoughts that I have or project those ideas onto something else to just try to get them out you know out of my own head um, but yeah he he would say that you could the, you can't make the otherness happen or you, you can't even invite it in all you can do is make the house very orderly and begin to cultivate a space where the otherness can enter. And, uh, and I think this is the, you know, these are the ecstatic dances. This, these are the eating, you know, eating healthy and feeling into what that means for you to eat healthy, you know, and, and putting attention on your dreams. As what I found so fascinating with, with dreams is it's like a, it's a relationship for me where if I write down the dreams and I like, visualize the dream character, you know, the dream beings that I meet and, and I visualize them in the regular every day. And when I have very beautiful experiences or bizarre experience, I ask myself if I'm dreaming and I dream test, uh, all of a sudden it begins to create almost like a bridge, but it's not like a bridge, like a physical bridge, like a rainbow bridge in a sense. Like it's, it's there, but not there, like kind of like a rainbow between the, between the two places. And as that bridge gets stronger, uh, I, I'm able to communicate more with that. It creates a, a different, hmm, trying to figure out the term, it creates a different perspective or angle or, or, or my sense of self is greater. Like I am not just Zach Geist and the story of Zach Geist and my, the history of Zach Geist. I am, but I'm also that. I'm not not that either. I'm also that. Uh, but at the same time, there's there's these other relationships that happen. Uh, Mikhail, I wanted to, I mean, one of the things that I don't know if people that listen to this podcast know, but one of the reasons that I, I spend so much time engaging with the Jung Society and the work of Carl Jung and in Jungian depth therapy with you and uh, why I'm so passionate about bringing, you know, a voice, why, why I started the Zeitgeist with that guy's podcast was that I saw that at Ecstatic Dance and in this, and in this, uh, kind of new age, I guess you could say, especially associated with ecstatic dance, especially associated with ecstatic dance in Salt Lake City, because that's really what I could speak most to, because that's where I'm at, is what it seems like people are really craving. They really love to have these ecstatic states and these ecstatic experiences and these divine, these divine states of consciousness. They also like to experience connection with other people, you know, and, and it's so easy to do that in a nonverbal space. And what I feel like, at least for me, was lacking was the language and the vocabulary and the ability to share meaning with everybody. Uh, you know, people with lots of different belief systems would come together. And it's great when there's tons of people. With, I, I think that's amazing that people have different belief systems. And I, I, I wish that there was some way to be able to create some language around being able to also connect with people using, you know, words as opposed to just dancing. Dancing's fantastic. And connecting in that way is beautiful, but to be able to connect with words. And uh, I wanted to maybe talk about what you believe the value to shared meaning is and uh, what maybe what you've experienced in learning, kind of creating this vocabulary and this lexicon that goes with depth psychology, how that's helped you connect with other people through conversation and through therapy. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a deep question. First of all, I think you did an amazing job in creating that uh, ecstatic dance in Salt Lake, and I've been there uh, once in a while, and uh, it really provides for people a way in a healthy, in a healthy way to st to connect with different states of consciousness, and uh, and and to embody that, and where uh, where 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 maybe uh, uh, now where depth psychology helps is to get a framework on for those that uh, like that, of 
of what uh, what is happening. How are there these all these different worlds inhabited with these different states of consciousness, and how can you relate to it? It's almost like a like an insight. Jung uh, once said. Uh, uh, there's an ethical obligation to having an insight. You need to do something with it. And uh, people that have a lot of insights but don't do things with it, uh, you will see that they sooner or later get a bit anxious, neurotic, uh, depressive. It's almost like the insight uh, starts uh, bugging them uh, to tell them uh, you need to do something, you need to do something. Uh, but they ignore that. So uh, there is free will. But there is also another world that, uh, that, that almost knocks at your door and tells you you need to do something. Now when people have, uh, have these beautiful uh, uh, experiences, uh, it, uh, it can open them up to uh, uh, living a richer, more meaningful life uh, day to day. And uh, uh, by, by cultivating these, uh, these uh, experiences and, uh, uh, or, or talking with others about them, and so, um, by, uh, by understanding a bit better what you encounter and what, uh, what it does and how, it, uh, how, how, how they uh, uh, influence you, you can give form to them into this world. And the, and the result of that is that you will feel more at peace with yourself. Uh, it leads to, uh, in, in grand terms, uh, maybe some form of enlightenment uh, down the road. But uh, life becomes meaningful, purpose. Uh, passionate, uh, you become uh, kinder to yourself, more compassionate, and uh, uh, less uh, um, troubled by, uh, by by the darker side of uh, of the criticism and the relationships. And you learn the relationship dynamics. So the, the 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 experience and the insight together allow for a very fulfilling life. And, and experience only will not do that, and insight only will not do that either. So, by understanding what, uh, what happens and give form to that, and uh, so only thinking about things won't get you there, but uh, if you have an experience and you don't do anything with it, it becomes fleeting, and then you get a, a certain hunger for that experience again. And uh, uh, drugs is one way of, of of accessing the other world and uh, it's a very effective way and uh, if you can do it once in a while there's nothing wrong with it but when it becomes your uh, once you start needing that way to access these different states uh, you have lost uh, it it's it's an it's an initiation that has never been uh, completed the insight of what uh, what you could uh, learn from it and then the implementation in your day-to-day -day world hasn't happened and then you get looped into a destructive pattern so that is what where depth psychology can mm, get this is it. kind of maybe what's happening with a lot of the uh, different uh, what people are calling plant medicines uh, and it's probably been called plant medicines for a long time uh, that people are having these very mystical experiences with deeply rich with personal meaning but then they're going back to life, maybe somewhat kind of life as usual, and then going back and doing that again and again and again and again and again and again because they really crave that experience of deep meaning and uh, insight, but are unable somehow. I mean, I don't know, I'm, I can't speak for everybody, but maybe a lot of people are drawn back into that because they're not able to integrate the insight. It's almost like they have insight indigestion in a way, and they the cure seems to be to go back and get more insight because that temporarily relieves that pressure maybe. I don't know, that's kind of what I hear coming from you. Yeah, and the, 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 the insight uh, co combined with uh, the embodied living out uh, maybe more self-care or self-love or love for others or uh, it breaks down uh, limiting beliefs. But, but the crucial element is that you can live that in this world. And... Uh, uh, and it is this world that will really set you free. The other worlds will give you phenomenal experiences. But uh, uh, if you cannot live that in your day-to-day -day life, you will get drawn in an uh, unhealthy way to uh, get uh, to, to, to access those states again.
and uh, um, if, if a person uses heroin then they probably like the experience of having no problems and uh, everything is okay but uh, uh, yeah opiates are opiates are phenomenal at giving that experience I, I could speak from that firsthand your life can be in total disarray and you take you take an oxycodone and all of a sudden you could do all that work that has been piling up and uh, keep moving forward. I, I, I could almost guarantee you if, if you look at a lot of high-level executives that are not sociopathic, most likely they're using something to numb, whether it's alcohol or opiates or something, in order to numb out that those, those feelings that are trying to stop you from doing it. Because you, I mean, I could speak for myself, it was the, that tenacity and that forcefulness that got me out of my upbringing. Um, they kind of freed me from that. And then it's all I knew was how do I plow forward? And eventually it took stronger and stronger things to numb. Yeah. So there, uh, there's eventually a, nothing would work. There, there's a lot of very valuable, uh, uh, valuableness in that experience. But if that doesn't become then an embodied experience in which you have the ability to uh, feel okay about yourself from time to time, uh, then you will be drawn back into uh, the opioids. But opioids gives you the experience of, hey, actually, you can feel okay about who you are. And there's this deep sense of love for who you are. And if you've never had that, it's, a, it's, it's, it's like a very, very warm embrace and a beautiful experience. But then the hard work comes. You have to implement it in, in, in this reality. It's like Joseph Campbell has that hero journey. You uh, leave this world, you go into the other world, you have uh, you fight some dragon or you uh, steal a, a fire or a boon and you come back and then you come back into this world and then you have to give that to community. So you get a gift that you need to deliver to community. And once you do that, you start feeling very fulfilled. So when you had the vision of the uh, ecstatic dance that was in the other world, then you go through all the hard work to uh, put it into this world with a lot of uh, annoyances and frustrations and joys, and then you give it to community, and then you, you then you have then you make that uh, that hero's journey. But that is where real uh, sustained meaning and fulfillment comes from, and appears to be uh, the goal of uh, of the other world to help you do that. And if you don't, you get all these dysfunctions and 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 uh, uh, neurosis and uh, depressions and uh, OCD, all these terms that we have can be seen as uh, as as uh, other world interfering in your world to help you fulfill that what you came to do into this world. I heard Carl Jung, I think, say that uh, the gods are in our illnesses. Uh, they're in our OCD, they're in all of those elements. And the gods being a, a polytheistic, deeply rich, uh, uh, archetypical way of viewing, but I don't want to dive too deep into that. Maybe if a lot of people want to hear more, we could bring, uh, I could have you back as a guest and we could talk more about that. that. Um, I know we're reaching towards the end of the podcast, and I'll probably even mention this at the beginning, but uh, there's something really exciting happening, not tomorrow, but the following day. Uh, this podcast is going to go live tomorrow. So when you're listening to this, if you're listening to the day that it comes out, uh, this, what is it, Thursday? Yeah, April 2nd, the uh, corona uh, uh, virus response plan that we built with the Young Platform will come live. So on Thursday, we have Michael Mead, magnificent uh, storyteller that was on your show. Then we have one of the best Jungian analyst teachers uh, currently alive who will reframe fear, how to be with the fear in the mythological descent that we're currently in. And then on uh, next Wednesday, we have Robert Bosnak, who will help you create a neuroimaginal vaccine. Currently, there's not yet a vaccine for the uh, uh, coronavirus, but how can we trigger the innate healing, the innate healing uh, in, the, in the mind or in the soul? The, how can we trigger the immune system to help us fight off uh, the coronavirus and uh, there will be uh, suggestions given to that there are live webinars or if you miss it or uh, you can also watch the recordings and we make it uh, available to anyone so it is for $47 but if you uh, have just been uh, laid off or there's another financial problem you just send us an email and we'll uh, get you a scholarship 
Great. And I'll put the email in the notes of the podcast as well. And as well as the the sign up link, I'll put that in the in the notes of the podcast, both in uh, I guess in uh, SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. Um, great. So uh, I'm eager. I will be there for sure. Excited to hear Michael Mead's voice. He was in the basically the the he's in the the Seattle area. So he was there at the I'm failing the word like the place where it was happening the most yes. at, at yeah. the beginning. And I guess New York has now taken taking the the lead, so to speak, in uh, mortality and all of that. So uh, I'm lucky and blessed in the sense that I just happen to find myself here on an 86-acre farm with food and hydroelectric power on the big island of Hawaii with no neighbors. So my, you know, I mean, I feel very blessed because this was totally not planned. And uh, so I think there's very few cases here on the island. So I'm in one of those places. yeah, I mean, I think that this COVID virus is going to awaken people up to a lot of things that I'm seeing so far. Charles Eisenstein, a good friend of mine, he wrote an, an essay that crashed his website, like tens of millions of, of views all at the same time, and his website crashed. And he had a really cool perspective. If you haven't checked that out, go to uh, charleseisenstein.net and check out his uh, essay. It's about 9,000 words, so it's a little bit on the long side. Uh, but uh, it was, it's profound. I mean, I think that a lot of people are going to, they're out of work and they get to decide, hey, do I want to go back and spend my life doing more of what I've been doing? Or do I want to do something different? As well as like, I feel like a deep craving for community. You know, I'm an introvert by nature and I feel like really, really craving to be around people in like actual physical presence. And uh, and I think that also intentional communities and people living in harmony with the land and the spirit of a land, uh, because all cultures believe that there were spirits and ancestors that were living on the land. So, uh, yeah, very, uh, very excited for this uh, COVID. Um, uh, what are we? What are you calling it? A coronavirus response plan. The coronavirus response plan. Charles's talk, uh, his essay was called "The Coronation." <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been a big shift. Uh, uh, I I think it's been a very uh, big collective initiation, or at least an invitation to become initiated. And I think some people will be initiated into a new way of being after they come out of that. Oh, coughs! Coughs have a whole new meaning now <laughs> when somebody coughs. Hey, thank you so much, Michiel. Thank you, uh, Zach. Uh, and also check out. Check out uh, the Jung Society of Utah. They have plenty of events if you're ever in the Utah area. And Mahil, are you taking any more uh, patients at the moment? Or is you, are you completely full? Yeah, now that, uh, now that uh, I have no travel time, I'm uh, at uh, home. I can see people uh, uh, over the internet, Zoom, and uh, wherever they are. If they uh, want to work on debt or dreams or just in therapy, they're welcome. They can just send me an email and we'll go from there. Great. And what's your email, Michiel? How do they find you? Uh, that's my uh, first and last name, M-A-C-H-I-E-L-K-L-E-R-K.com. Great. Thank you so much, Michiel. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m. And we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. 
Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you.